Well, if you uh, are a young person, you can head with Katie to children's worship. Uh, the rest of us, we're going to have some fun tonight. You can grab your Bible. We're going to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, why don't we pray? And then uh, we'll, we'll chat about why we're in Ephesians 2 and uh, not in the Minor Prophets tonight as we've been in our series. Lord, thank you for an opportunity to come together, a uh, chance for your church to uh, be here together meeting, uh, celebrating, worshiping you, uh, having an opportunity to uh, study your word and, and come to trust and follow you in all parts of our life. I pray that you would uh, continue to unify your church under the banner of the cross, that we would be a people who are led to the cross again and again and again, seeing it as our source of reconciliation, our source of uh, not only that, Lord, but as we'll look at tonight, unity in one another under you. And so I pray that you would uh, continue to do that, especially as, as we meet uh, Saturday nights and Sunday mornings and have this kind of half, half divided or double congregation type of thing that uh, you would use that for the sake of your glory and produce in us a great deal of unity. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, um, if you have a Bible, Ephesians chapter 2, I want to just really quickly uh, let you know, we're, so we have been in a series in the Minor Prophets for several weeks now. We just last week uh, finished up the book of Habakkuk, uh, which is uh, the third of four of the Minor Prophets that we're going to cover uh, in this series. And so we, we wanted to put a pause in between that and the last prophet, Zephaniah, and, and we'll go back to that next week. Um, but the, the reason we're going to do that is, is kind of twofold. Um, one of the things that we wanted to accomplish when we went to look at minor prophets, uh, we wanted to kind of ground where we were in the scriptures in a place that was really going to connect well to all that was going on in the world uh, in these times, right? And so uh, it's been a relatively crazy summer and into the fall. And so uh, we, we said, okay, well, what's a way for us to really recognize and remember that this isn't a new thing for God? It might be for us, but ultimately that God has always been at work, even in the craziest of times and the craziest of circumstances. And so uh, there's, there's nothing unprecedented with him. And so uh, not only that, but we wanted to look and say, as believers, what ought we do with such an unprecedented time in, in our minds, right? And so uh, when the world seems a little chaotic and a little unsettled and even crazier than usual and you have all of these sort of hostile and hot button things that continue to sort of present themselves week in and week out and for many of us daily in our lives. And so uh, you have all that things all the things that come with COVID and all the things that come with the election and all the things that come with just about everything else that is kind of wrapped up into one ball of like what I would say is hostility in our culture, right? That there's a great deal of tension. There's a great deal of, um, in fact, I think if you, if you don't know someone real well right now and you get into a conversation with them, don't you feel like there's a little bit greater like need to sort of walk on eggshells than usual to try to feel out like where is this person in all of these like five or six different binary issues that are going on in our culture, or you're like, I just, I just don't care, but I offend a lot more people this time around, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm, I probably fall in that category a little more than I should, uh, but ultimately, I think we wanted to take and find 
uh, in this time and go, hey, searching the scriptures, where do you see again and again and again these kind of things come up and what does the Lord say to us? And so we said, hey, let's go to the minor prophets and do that. Uh, then... Um, we, this week, had a really kind of a neat opportunity that's been a culmination of some things that uh, has been going on behind the scenes here for a while in our leadership levels. Um, I, had a, I had an opportunity to preach for a church in Edgerton, Wisconsin, uh, during the week this week because their services are, are virtual, and so we recorded it coming into this weekend, uh, and they're in a series in Ephesians, and just so happened that the passage that they wanted me to preach on was what it looks like to be united in Christ as his church and how that would look in the world, what the world might see when that's the case. And so I felt like, okay, well, that's a pretty great culminating uh, sermon and idea that we had really grounded in the minor prophets. So it seemed to, seemed to fit together, except that I have to go back next week and preach Zephaniah. So it wasn't, wasn't perfect. And I guess I could have shelved this one and gave it to you a week from now, but I just preached it on like Thursday. So I was excited to preach it again uh, and didn't want to write a new sermon, uh, which is, I don't know, you can call that lazy. I don't think that was the reason. I think I just, just eager to get this one to you. And so um, by way of saying that, I do, I do want to just add so this church that we're partnered with in Edgerton, Emmaus Community Church, and uh, the pastor there is named Luke Allison. Many of you have had uh, seen Luke. He's been here and preached before. Uh, they're a church plant about three years old. We helped kind of uh, financially support them and partner with them and help get them off the ground. And so uh, during this time, and especially like in this year, uh, church planting has become like a pretty incredible challenge. Uh, we, have, we have this really great and uh, beautiful foundation that we were able to, like during all of this, sort of, sort of rest on the fact that we've, we've been around for 170 years, and, and like 2020 will not be the last year we're around, right? Uh, that is a little bit of a different level of comfort when you're a church plant that's like two and a half years old, and you're in a rented space, and you're, it's a government space, and so the facility questions were just massive with what they could do and couldn't do, and if they could meet, and uh, a whole bunch of kind of things juggled up in the air, and so uh, was, was been, has been and continues to be like a little bit more of a turbulent time for them, not to mention they're just outside of Madison, and so it creates uh, some differences in the way that local government handles things, and so among all of these things, uh, I would just say, pray for that church, pray for that church and their leadership uh, as they try to navigate some of this time and, and move forward, and also let it be a time that we both rejoice that the Lord has given us a congregation that we can continue to fellowship and meet and be together, uh, and that the very nature of this message is that the church global, not just this congregation, but all of us together are meant to be united in Christ, and so their burden, to some extent, is our burden. And so uh, we, we want to pray for them and know that just like them, there are many other congregations who are, are struggling to figure out if they can meet, how they can meet, when they can meet, uh, what, what kind of laws are forbidding them to meet, and in doing so, how do they bring forth good Christ-like community in a, in a world that is so... Uh, alienated to that right now and, and really hostile towards a lot of it in many ways. And so pray for them. Uh, and, and that's all the introduction to get us to Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to pick up in verse 11 
uh, and read through to the end of the chapter. But I want to get you uh, some background in order for us to make sense of that because verse 11 begins this way. Therefore, uh, anytime you're going to see that in Paul's letters and find a passage that begins with therefore, you need to read the passage before it to see what it's there for, right? Like you get... Get how that little play on words works. And so in that, uh, we go back and find that in chapter 2, what Paul's going to lay down is the foundational message of the gospel so that he can make his case that goes forward in the rest of the chapter. So, so here's essentially what Paul wants to do in Ephesians 2. He wants to build out that you and I are meant to be united in Christ. But in order to do that, he spends the first 10 verses laying out what it means to be in Christ. That you and I can't ever find unity in Christ if we're not first in Christ. And so he begins by talking about us being dead in our trespasses and sins. It meant that you and I weren't just uh, good people who had a little bit of hiccups here and there and we were mostly okay with God, but we needed to get a few things right in order to kind of seal the deal, but rather that we were alienated from him. We were away from him in our own abilities, and we needed someone by grace to come and save us from that, which is what he says in Ephesians 2.8, that it's by grace you have been saved, and that is through faith. It's not by your works so that nobody could boast. That's a, in fact, it's a gift of God, and it's not in your ability to do something to make God pleased with you by your own works, right? But rather that only through faith in the fact that God sent Christ to reconcile us to himself, to bring us into right standing with God, can we be saved. And then he goes on to say this in verse 10, for we... All of those who are in Christ are God's workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus, listen to this, for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. That the purpose of your salvation is that you would go forth in good works. You don't achieve it by your good works, but once you've had it given as a gift in God's grace received by faith, then you walk forth in good works, right? That was what your salvation is indeed for. And so you come out of that in gratitude, walking forth in good works for the Lord. And, and now, taking that, Paul's going to go, okay, so what does it look like to be the workmanship of Christ walking forth in good works? And, and so he picks up in verse 11, and he says this, Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at a time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Okay, so let me pause there and kind of give you a really kind of quick conception of who he's talking to. The church in Ephesus is made up of primarily Gentiles, or, or what Paul's going to call the uncircumcision. It meant there was anybody who wasn't of Jewish background. That's a probably broad way to bring it all into play. You and I come 
from Gentile land as Gentile people because we don't have background in the Jewish faith. And yet, where Paul's preaching, most of the places he goes, there's Jews that are around that are the first people that hear the gospel message. It wasn't any different in Ephesus. In fact, when he showed up, he went straight to the synagogue and he began to preach to the Jews there. And it's not until the Jews go, no, we don't want any of this, that he turns to the Gentiles and many of them get saved. And so he's speaking to them And noting that before Christ, they had no relationship with God and they had no blessing as the Jews, the circumcision, those Israelites, the commonwealth of Israel, he calls it, had with God. That they were at one time knowing the things of God. Because they had the Old Testament, they had the temple, they had the sacrificial system, they had the law. And so they come in a place that is different from you Gentiles who had none of that. You are far off away from Christ. And in that, here's what he says. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the, de- barrier, the, broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that he himself might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. And he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. All right, so there's a lot of big words in there and a lot of kind of large concepts. And so I want to break that down a little bit. But in order to do so, you have to understand that Paul's primary point out of this is that in Christ, we find a great deal of unity. Now, it occurs to me that our culture, uh, amongst all its divisiveness, uh, values and treasures unity in and of itself even though you find that we're, we're maybe more divided than we've ever been as a culture, right? Uh, think about this. One of, the, one of the really interesting things that happened this week, if you uh, wasted your time watching a presidential debate, which I did, uh, is you found that, that both of them had a strong, uh, almost assumed need to speak to how they were going to unify the nation, True, right? Both, both of them. Uh, that wasn't even a question of whether or not you want to unify the nation. If you're going to be the president, you need to unify the nation, right? In fact, you can find that on a smaller level over and over and over again. Organizations go to great strides to try to unify their customer base, their employee base. Uh, groups try to unify their volunteers. There's, there's a desperate desire for unity. The difficulty that you have with it is eventually you find things more fundamental in people's lives than their co-affiliation to some type of group that they might be unified in, right? And like, so you might, you might be unified because you're in the same club, but if the two of you are wildly different, eventually those differences come out and they supersede a club unification in most places in our culture, right? Uh, let me give you a couple examples of what that looks like. My grandma... Uh, before she died, the last like 10 years of her life, was in a, a group that met for lunch once a month and spent a significant amount of time together called the Lois Group. That was, like you want to guess what the qualifier was? 
you to be named Lois. That was it. So, so by its nature, pretty exclusive group. I couldn't get there, right? Couldn't, couldn't, I also was about 40 years too young. Uh, however, uh, even if I had wanted to be, you, none of you could be in that group. Now, what's fascinating is all the people in that group had the same first name and, and probably about the same median age because that's who wants to join a Lois Club. Uh, however, beyond that, what do they have in common? I mean, they, they don't need to have anything in common. In fact, in the conversation, they could have absolutely zero in common, and yet the unifying factor in that group was a bond deep enough to hold them to a once-a-month lunch that got pretty superficial and stayed that way because if you went deeper, you'd find that despite the fact that your name is Lois and your name is Lois, you might actually hate each other, right? Quite possible. Uh, let me give you another one uh, that's going on right now. This is how you know I love you. Michigan is playing their first football game of the season right now, and I'm here with you and, and joyously here with you. I'm not even trying to rush this sermon. Uh, and so in that, uh, they... They play, I'm a huge Michigan football fan, always have been, went to U of M, uh, and while I was there, had season tickets. And so every single home game, I would go, and I would stand in the student section with all of these people that I barely or did not at all know. And you know what would happen? Every time we would score a touchdown or make a big play or whatever, we'd all turn to each other, we're high-fiving, and we're cheering, and we're like, we're in this together. They have no idea who our names are, but we're in it together. We're like with them, right? We, we make a difference on this team, supposedly. We don't, but we think we do. And then we'd score touchdowns, and, and when they'd score a touchdown, every once in a while, you'd grab somebody in the stands, and they would do push-ups. And so the rest of the people in the stands would throw them up in the air, however many points we had. So if we had 35 points, you're going to throw them up in the air 35 times, and then you set them back down. Seems like a dumb tradition. You're like throwing an entire stranger into an air. I mean, it seems unsafe, right? Especially if you're the person being, I was, I'm a big guy. I was never the guy getting thrown in the air. But if you're that person, you've now entrusted your life and well-being to a bunch of college kids. Again, not the smartest thing. Uh, and, and they're throwing you up and down in the air. And we're all in this together. And you know what's crazy about that? Is, is you felt this really tight-knit, unifying bond with these total strangers who I promise you, when I left that stadium, are so wildly different than me in so many ways. And, and the reality is, and I know because it was the student section, I went to school with a lot of them, I didn't even get along with many of them. Right? That, that we come from different perspectives and different backgrounds and have different views on everything in the world. And so our unity was held tightly enough that it would survive a football game and build some allegiance to a college football program. But ultimately, it didn't, didn't supersede all things in our life. Right? And so one of the things that you have in our culture that I think you see as, as really, really problematic is that unity in and of itself has become a goal instead of a result of, of a goal. You, you see what I mean by that? When, when the goal becomes, let's just all get along, it only serves its purpose until you find something that you treasure or value more than getting along. Right? And so Paul's point is going to be this, that the only way that you and I are unified together is when the 
deepest treasure of our life is Christ. That, that the only way that the church is a unified entity, that the only way we're all one group, despite all of the differences, is that our allegiance to Christ supersedes all. That it's, that it's meant to be first and it's meant to be foremost. That it is the most foundational piece of our life so that the church might walk forth as one unified entity. And so what he says Christ does is he breaks down the barrier wall. Now, let me give you a little history to help you understand what he's looking at in his context 2,000 years ago. And then we'll, we'll put it into ours 2,000 years later. Uh, at that time, the most frustrating and serious issue within the early Christian church is what to do with Gentiles. You see, the, the first Christians are all Jewish. In fact, uh, the early church is noted, it's called the way, as in the way of Christ within Judaism because there's no one that exists in the early church that isn't Jewish despite the fact that Jesus right before he ascends to heaven it says you're going to make disciples of all nations all people groups that meant not just Jews but also the Gentiles and that he'll be my you'll be my witnesses to Jerusalem Judea Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth that you would go to Gentiles despite that the early church just sees Jews getting saved and so uh, they continue to kind of wrestle with and try to figure out what it looks like to be a Christian, but to keep their Jewish identity, which meant that they were keeping uh, as best they could Jewish law. It meant that they were making sacrifices according to Jewish law, and it meant that they were visiting the temple with regularity, that those were three of the principal tenets of what it meant to be a Jew, even as a Christian. So they're still doing these things, and then some problems start to come up in the church. Uh, the very beginning of church problems begin to exist when people who aren't Jewish start to get saved. And so uh, by Acts chapter 10, you're finding the church is, is beginning to explode off in many different directions, and there's a little bit of tension about it. Uh, and by that point, Peter, the first apostle, actually has to have a vision from the Lord to recognize that it is okay for people who aren't Jewish to have Christ. And, and so what happens is one of the most important things for Jews was their dietary laws, the things that they would eat and they wouldn't eat. And so uh, God puts Peter into a trance, is what the Bible says, and takes from heaven a blanket filled with animals that would have been deemed unclean, things he couldn't eat, and says, kill and eat. Now that's a good verse, right? And, and so in this, Peter goes, no, 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 I couldn't, I couldn't eat these animals. I only eat clean animals. And, uh, and so God says, after three times showing him this, what, what I've made clean, you no longer consider unclean, right? It's like Peter's, uh, I call it his pigs in a blanket vision, right? Like, because there, there's blanket, the pigs, you can eat those. And, and so out of this, Peter recognizes this is God telling us that the, the gospel could go to the Gentiles. Now, Maybe you're somebody who goes, I don't know if that like is, is really like enough to be like, oh, the gospel should go to the Gentiles. Here's what happens. Peter wakes up, and as he wakes up, some guy's knocking on his door, a Gentile, and goes, hey, are you Peter? Hey, come here. We have a bunch of people that you need to come preach to. Uh, God sent us to you. He's like, how'd you know to find me on my roof, right? Because God sent me. And so Peter decides, okay, I just had this vision. I'm going to roll with it. He goes. He shows up at a guy named Cornelius' house. whole bunch of Gentiles are there. As he walks in, he goes, hey, 
we're all Gentiles and you need to preach to us the good news of Jesus Christ. Peter's like, okay, I guess so. Holy Spirit falls on them, they all get saved right there. And the church begins to explode outside of Judaism. Well, the problem is, now Jews are trying to figure out, like, okay, well, what do you do? Do you, do you make these people Jewish? They have no background in Judaism. And Christ came to fulfill the law, not to uphold the law. And so, uh, do we even have to mess with this? And, and so, it goes on. In fact, it becomes such a tense thing that in Acts 15, just five chapters later, they have to all come together in Jerusalem, have a special church meeting to decide if Gentiles are allowed to be saved. And for four chapters now, by thousands, Gentiles are getting saved, right? Like, that's typical church. Like, we're going to have a business meeting to decide what God's already done and if it's allowed or not, right? And so, out of this, Peter and Paul and... Um, James all speak up and go, hey, this is happening, right? There is no Jew and there is no Gentile. There's believer and not believer. That, that in Christ, we are one. That's exactly what Paul says here. As Christ broke down the dividing wall and took away the enmity and made peace, taking two groups and reconciling them into one group. And so this thing that has become so divisive and this thing that has become such an issue, and as you read the New Testament, continues over and over and over and over again, and Paul continues to make this appeal. Christ is bigger than whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. Christ is more important. It supersedes your history and your heritage. In fact, his argument is Christ supersedes everything. This, this is where it applies today. Christ supersedes everything in, in my life and yours. That, that it's meant to be bigger than everything else. Right? So, so fast forward 2,000 years and think about it this way because my guess is unless you, you work in a really different environment than this, uh, and you, you probably have a long commute, you're not interacting with a whole bunch of practicing Orthodox Jews on a regular basis trying to figure out like if it's okay for you to associate with them because they're Jews and you're a Gentile, but rather that you almost never interact with that issue that Paul's talking about, and yet... Here's what we see over and over and over again in our culture to this day. That the world, though it strives for some semblance of unity, as we talked about earlier, is as divided as, as maybe it's ever been. Is that fair? I mean, I mean, think about how much that the nature of our culture has worked to establish that who you are is just a collection of binary decisions, right? Do you wear a mask or not? Are you voting for this guy or this guy? Are, are you doing this thing or that thing? Are you black lives matter or blue lives matter, right? Like there, there's almost no interest in dialogue. There's, there's no interest in uh, connectivity to other people. There's no interest in trying to understand where somebody else might be coming from. Ultimately, you just pick one or the other. In fact, the two don't always have to be mutually exclusive, and yet we're going to try to box people in into one thing or the other. Amen? Is that, that about where we're at as a culture? You don't have to talk. It's fine. I wouldn't ask you if I didn't feel really sure that I was right. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to ask like an unrhetorical question. Anyways, let's keep going. Uh, and so in this, right, you find that 2,000 years later, maybe, maybe the chief issue doesn't have anything to do with Jews and Gentiles, but here's, here's what I think you see all across our culture. 
are people who are desperate to find a way to include themselves in some type of good, right, and justified box at the expense of whoever they can kick out of it. And so out of that, all things that that we do to establish our identity are, are these different forms of idolatry where people are just grasping at something like, I'm this, and therefore I matter, and I'm right, and if you aren't, you're wrong. And if there's anything that can really accelerate and, and blow that up, it's uh, take people and isolate them for eight months and don't let them really actually have conversations with each other. And then throw an election in where you have uh, one choice or another in two bad choices and go, hey, pick one of these and don't talk to each other. Just be about this thing or that thing and let's see if we can create some identities that aren't really a, a good measure of our identity to begin with, right? Because we're complex people. We're not just an either or identity in all things. And yet uh, what we've found is a culture that loves that kind of thing. And here's, here's why. Here's, here's Paul's argument. Because, because you're not in Christ. Be- because you haven't found the one identity that ought to supersede all. Now, that's not saying you can't have opinions about all of those things. I'm a very opinionated guy, right? I'm, I'm with Jimmy. I'm offending people left and right at times uh, because it's just, it's just enjoyable to me. <laughs> it's probably not to them. Uh, here's the thing. You can have those opinions, but, but they better not supersede Christ. They better not find themselves on a pedestal in your life that elevates beyond Christ, right? They better, they better not be the thing that is biggest in your life because ultimately what happens is that you get sucked into the same thing that Paul's warning the church in Ephesus not to get sucked into. He goes, he goes listen, Christ took these two groups and he broke them down and he made them into one through his work. He reconciled it. And he goes so far as to continue on in this way. I, I want you to see this. As he continues on, you pick up in verse 16. It says, he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by, having, by it having put to death the enmity. And then, then he's going to go on to talk about the ways that Christ has superseded the things that were so important to these groups before. Remember, remember this as we read. The Jews, what made them a Jew was that they kept the law, that they offered sacrifices, and that they did it at the temple. Those were the three most important pieces of Judaism at this time. And here's what he does. He says, he came and he preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints, and you are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Here's here's what he does as he's laying out this argument. He's going to break down all of the things that the Jews would have said, well, this is, this is Jewish identity. He said, no, 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 your identity is in Christ now. Even your Jewish identity ought to be defined in Christ because the law that was so important to you, look at verse 15, was abolished because 
in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in the ordinance, so that he himself might make the two into one. He says when he came and he died, he fulfilled the law. He abolished the law. He overrules the law. And so in Christ, that becomes a more important identity than your Jewish identity. Not only that, in verse 18, he says through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. You know what they did when the sacrifices came in? The, the, the purpose of the sacrificial system was to uh, give an offering for your sin so that you would have access to God unhindered or unstopped by your sin. And so the purpose of the sacrifice was that you would offer something that would atone for your sin enough so that you could have access to God. And, and here's what Paul argues. Christ gives you access. Christ was the atoning sacrifice for your sin, you have access through him. It's not through the law, and it's not through the sacrifice. And then, to top all of that off, he says you are built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. He says when you and I are part of the church, when we're in Christ You don't have to go to the temple anymore. We are the temple. The the church of God becomes the temple. The Holy Spirit dwells in believers, no longer in a place, and it's all foundational on the cornerstone, which is Christ. So so let me finish with this. Um, I want to consider this in the way that Paul builds this out and, and really is laying out the need for unity I think we, we say Christ supersedes all as a believer. That, that it would be deeper than all things. And, and I want to give you three specifically that I think, I think are worth our time, consideration, and maybe you just pray on this week as you consider it uh, in a culture that is, is so divisive uh, and, and so um, hostile and, and really so confused and blinded in the time that we're in, okay? First, I think it means that Christ supersedes our racial and ethnic differences. And, and so I know that in Darlington, right, we have this kind of, kind of feeling like we're insulated uh, from the racial, ethnic diversity that exists around us, especially in a time where you, you watch, turn on the news and you watch uh, all of these different ideas about um, what, what black lives mean and what police lives mean and what white lives mean and, and, and what all of this is, uh, here's, here's my uh, challenge to us away from this, right, a little bit, is that uh, you wouldn't just completely disengage in that, but that you would recognize that in Christ, all lives are important, right? That, that in Christ, it would supersede differences that you might have in, in any type of ethnic or racial background. Second, I, I think it means and, and this one maybe a little, little bit harsher for us or hits a little bit closer to home with us is that in Christ, his, his unity in Christ supersedes social and, uh, and political ideological differences. Especially as, as we get ready for an election, here's, here's something that I'm convinced of. There, there are people within our church and within the church community around us that will vote for either candidate coming up in November. And ultimately, it matters more that they would know and follow Christ than who they vote for. Again, I'm an opinionated guy. I'm voting, right? I'm telling you, 
who I vote for is not as consequential to my life, your life, or our life as a community as it is to know, submit, and follow Jesus Christ. Amen. Not only that, um, last one, and, and I think this is where most practically, day-to-day, uh, you, you don't do this by accident. I think Christ supersedes our otherwise social differences. Um, here's, here's the thing that I mean by this, and this is what makes the church such a beautiful entity. I would, if it weren't for the church, there, there are some of you that I would almost never spend time with. I, I, I'm, I'll use you as an example because I think that you can handle it and I love you enough, right? Herm, Herman and Carol um, are, are some of my favorite people here. And uh, you might be my favorite. I, I don't want to hurt all of them, though, <laughs> right? I, I love you guys. And, and over the past five years, uh, we, we have this just such this deep bond. Carol sent my, my son a card, just like a no reason card this week. And uh, he was like overjoyed by it. Like the, one of the most influential things in his life. You know? and, and so uh, we have this really tight-knit bond and this, this deep relationship and this care and love for one another. Uh, I mean, your kids are older than I am. Shelly, I hope she watches this. Uh, right? If it, if it weren't for Christ, we're, we're probably not socializing, right? Uh, it, consistently in my time in the church, one of the most incredible things for me has been people that otherwise I would have very little in common with, or, or maybe I'd have more in common with than what I'd ever realize because I'd never seek those people out. And, and in Christ, of all things in common with them. That, that in Christ, it ought to supersede uh, the natural and bring us into a spiritual and cause us to be a community of believers. And, and here's the thing, every one of us is better for it because you build off of other believers and grow and encourage one another and exhort one another and at times correct one another and rebuke one another even. But in that, the superseding nature of Christ ought to bring us together despite all of the diversities that we have. And so uh, Paul's plea and, and our reminder again and again, and we'll, we'll always come back to preach this, is the beauty of the church and the necessity of the church is that you bring together many, many people and what you find is real unity. Not a superficial unity because that's not the goal. The goal is to be in Christ for the glory of the Father. And when that goal becomes number one for us, it brings about a tremendous unity that will supersede all other things. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, so thankful for the unity that's in Christ, that we would be a people who see you as so important, so influential, so vital to our lives that nothing else would compare, nothing else would come close, and despite all other differences that we would find and treasure and and see our value in you. And so help us walk forth in a in a way, in a culture that that just doesn't have said unity, doesn't have the same depth of relationships that 
that we would be a people who in our oneness, in our love for one another, in our connectedness to one another, would be so invested in one another's lives that, uh, as you said in John 17, the world would know that we're your disciples, that it would show them what it looks like to live desiring not our own will but yours. Help us with it, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.